you're a first responder, your average day at the office is often the worst day of someone else's life. And when disaster strikes, most people try to get away as fast as they can. But there are those that run towards the floodwaters and the flames. I'm Jake Steinberg, and this is State of Emergency. Hurricane Katrina was one of the worst disasters in U.S. history. It's become entwined with the identity of New Orleans. But the crisis wasn't limited to the city, and neither were the acts of heroism. Here's Sophie Gross Road. Well, my normal day, I start off at 6 o'clock in the morning, and, and part of my job duties is to make sure all the fire stations are manned and ready for 7 o'clock for the next ongoing shift. We work a 24-hour day on, and we off for two days. Michael LeBeau is a district chief with the St. Bernard Parish Fire Department. We're talking in the fire station about six hours into his 24-hour shift. He's been with the department for 30 years, and he's by you, born and raised. St. Bernard Parish is a small community five miles outside of downtown New Orleans. While Hurricane Katrina was on its way to pummeling the city, the storm surge all but wiped out St. Bernard. If you're a first responder on the Gulf Coast, you're aware of the hurricane risk. You live with it every year. But Michael remembers having a feeling that this one was going to be different. I kind of felt like it was coming into the Gulf. Uh, Not necessarily to us, but as it got closer that night, uh, the night before, um, I kind of felt it was going to cross Florida, so... I came home late that night and told my wife, let's start packing the bag because we're leaving. After that, Michael went to work. Parish officials made a decision not to open any shelters of last resort, but at the last second, they changed their minds, opening up two local schools for all the people who didn't have the means to leave. Since Michael is also a paramedic, he was sent to the shelters. At first, there were less than 100 people waiting out the winds inside St. Bernard High School. Then, the waters came. You know, we had took all the people outside for a little bit to cool off because it felt really nice outside and, and it was so miserable hot upstairs. So uh, as we did that, I heard somebody yell about, you know, what's that? You know, when we looked down the street, there was a, a, a wave of water coming in. So everybody rushed back into the building and got back upstairs, and we slowly watched the steps disappear until we got to the last step before the second floor. And the whole time I was watching that is, you know, my how much water are we going to get? Because the only thing left that I got to go was to the roof. Michael and the other firefighters commandeered boats from local fishermen and set off trying to rescue people around the community. By the end of that day, there were 402 people in the high school. They didn't have any food or water, and there were multiple medical patients in critical need. But Michael and his department sustained all of them for four days. That wasn't the end of it, though. Michael himself worked for 17 days straight after Katrina. This whole time, his wife and children were in Nashville after he insisted they evacuate before the storm. Honestly, I can't remember if I even thought about my own residence and, and, and what was wrong with that because I had other things that I had to take care of, and that was the 400 people that I had at the other building plus my other brother firefighters that were with me. At one point, he did take a boat over to his childhood home. All he could see was a rooftop. I kind of fell to my knee, and I had uh, an emotional moment for a little bit. It, it, it's tough to do. It's, 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 a, it, it's, a, it's a door that's hard to close. But as firefighters, we tend to keep the job at hand up first, and we worry about other things later. Hurricane Katrina was the first time a mandatory evacuation was ordered in a major U.S. city. 
While firefighters and paramedics were conducting rescues on the ground, the state government was scrambling to coordinate more than 400,000 people all trying to leave. In Louisiana, the responsibility for making sure that evacuation went smoothly fell to the Department of Social Services. Marquita Walters was an assistant secretary in DSS at that time. She was in charge of child welfare. She still works in the state government. She's the secretary of what's now called the Department of Children and Families. Hurricane Katrina was unlike any other emergency that we've ever had. It was vast and scary, and we were ready for the hurricane part. We were not ready for the flood part. Secretary Walters has never lived in New Orleans, and she spent all of Hurricane Katrina at a command center in Baton Rouge. But her memories of the storm are still clear and intense 14 years later, especially the memory of a phone call. We got the call that there was a busload of children coming, and that's all we knew. We didn't know what kind of bus. We didn't know how big or how small. We didn't know what ages of children. We didn't know what condition they would be in. That's all we knew. No one had considered the possibility that children might be separated from their parents in the evacuation. Suddenly, it wasn't a possibility. It was a reality. And it fell to Walters and her staff to handle. There was no place in the state shelters for children. They had to make one. Fast. We had a shelter at LSU's campus, and we took another part of their campus and converted it into a shelter just in hours. And we had car seats and infant seats and diapers and wipes and teenage clothes and toys in just hours because our staff just flew and got everything they thought they would need for kids. And we were ready when they came. When the waters rose in New Orleans, people were being rescued from the roofs of their homes by boats and helicopters. Sometimes there wasn't room to take everyone, just the kids. So unaccompanied minors were showing up at the staging area in the New Orleans airport while most of their parents ended up on buses to Houston. There were 50 children at the separate shelter. That's 50 families frantic to be reunited with their kids. And reuniting them was easier said than done. Some kids were old enough to tell the staff their parents' names and where they lived, but many were too young to give that information or too traumatized to talk at all. They didn't know where they lived. They couldn't give us a street address. We could ask, you know, who do you stay with? Well, they stay with Poppy. Poppy's a very Cajun name that people call their grandparents. They stay with Poppy. Well, okay, they don't know where Poppy lives. They don't know Poppy's last name. There's no Poppy. Social workers stuck to questions the kids could answer. What's your teacher's name? What's your favorite stuffed animal? What color is your front door? That information turned out to be vital when it came to making sure the kids were returned to the right people. You usually could tell by the smile on the parent's face that we had found their child. Secretary Walters remembers one child in particular, one of the last they were able to place back at home. The girl was about eight, and she had some developmental issues. She was scared of the staff, and she would only open up when someone played with her. Her story in particular was amazing because she lived with her grandfather, and she didn't know his real name. He was in a hospital in Houston. We decided to film her from behind, not show her face, because that's kind of a taboo thing with kids. And so we filmed her outside playing with the ball. And the story that she lived with her grandfather was on television, and one of the nurses in the hospital saw it, ran into the grandfather's room, turned the television on, 
and he just screamed in delight that that was his granddaughter. In the end, all the children were reunited with their families. Like everyone else, Walter says her department learned a lot from Katrina. Before, it had never occurred to them that families might be separated in an evacuation. Now, it's part of their protocol to make sure that doesn't happen. Secretary Walters keeps a souvenir in her office from the Katrina days. It's a framed photo of a little boy in a too large t-shirt with a big smile on his face. She doesn't know the boy's name, just that the photo was taken in a shelter and that she makes sure to look at it every day. One of my workers snapped the picture and sent it to me. Every desk I've ever had, he's right there because he's the epitome of Katrina to me. He was safe, he was fed, he was in a place that people cared for him, and he was okay. And that's pretty much all we could ask for, was to be safe and dry and fed and okay. That was Sophie Grossroad. First responders put themselves in harm's way so others don't have to. It's a selfless job. But they aren't the only ones making a sacrifice. News 21 spent time with a family responding to the stress of their loved ones battling a fire miles away. Here's Anton Delgado. It's a lot hotter in the Grand Canyon State this year. In the last six months, more land has been burned by wildfires than in all of 2018. Over the summer, the Woodbury Fire burned its way to becoming the fifth largest wildfire in state history, torching nearly 124,000 acres of land. That's more than six million football fields. It threatened the lakeside community of Roosevelt, a small town in eastern Arizona. We want people to be ready to go. That was Dick Fleischman, a public information officer for the Woodbury Fire. On June 19, the 12th day of the fire, local authorities told Roosevelt residents to be ready to flee. This movement towards them, when we say go, we want them to grab their bag and get out of there. It was the next day they announced the mandatory evacuation. Everyone in Pat Spencer's family evacuated, except three. Pat's husband, son, and nephew are all firefighters. They're putting their lives on the line to save us. When everybody else is running out, they're running in. Pat had packed the night before, so she was one of the first to leave Roosevelt Estates. She drove about 30 miles south to Globe, where her brother lives and she used to live. I mean, I love being in, in, back at home. I used to live just like right down the street. I love being around my family and everything, but I miss my house. I miss home. I miss my husband. Because <laughs> it's just the two of us and we're very close. We're, I mean, we're together 24 seven. Pat's been married to John for the last 20 years. They had an under the sea wedding at Roosevelt Lake, just a few miles from where they live now. John was out working the Woodbury fire with the Tonto Volunteer Fire Department. With him on the fire line were Pat's son and nephew, both members of the Superstition Fire Department. I worry about him, and I worry about my nephews, I worry about my brothers, my husband, but I think, you know, they know what they're doing. They know exactly what to expect. They're not gonna be heroes. I mean, they are heroes already right now because of what they're doing, but they know better than they're not gonna put their lives on the line because they have families also. My son, he'll call me and give me, he says, I just got out of the briefing, and I said, oh, thank God, be careful, I love you, have a great day, be safe. And that's all you can do, but it, just to hear their voices puts me at ease for, for a little bit. Pat had no idea how long the evacuation or the fire would last. Local authorities had just told Roosevelt residents to sit tight. After five days of waiting, the evacuation was lifted.
That was John. He's just come back from the fire line and is helping Pat move back in. The first things they unpack are three figurines of angels embracing firefighters. Thank you, Lord, for protecting us, protecting our homes. Thank you, Lord, for protecting our firefighters. Without them, our homes will not be safe. We praise you, Lord. We give you thanks. Oh, there's just no words, but thank God we're home. It's, there's no place like home. And I did click my three, my heels together. So thank you, guys. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. That was Anton Delgado. We've heard stories of people saving lives, reuniting families, and battling fires. For our last story, News 21 reporter Alex Simon shows us heroism takes many sizes. So the moment you step inside Proust Pets in Lansing, Michigan's Old Town neighborhood, you can tell that this pet shop is alive. The building's 25,000 square feet, and every corner seems to be used. There's constant chatter of humans and birds echoing off the walls. There's a classroom, a quarantine room, a breeding room, a repurposed school bus, bird cages, reptile habitats, a small river with a bridge over the top of it, and thousands of fish tanks. And there's actually no way to count just how many creatures live inside this pet shop. And within the size of an apple, a particular coral is comprised of lots of animals. You could literally have 10,000 animals within that apple-sized coral right there in front of you. So to try to count noses, you know, I'm sure we'd be into the millions, right? So it's a, it's a little hard to count numbers. That's owner Rick Pruce. He's in his late 50s, and he's got this curly white beard that goes all the way to the middle of his torso. He got into pet shops at an early age thanks to his mother's fascination with them, but he's made their lifelong mutual interest into his career. I love the fact that I can kind of geek out on this stuff about how some cool and fascinating principles. Pruce opened the Old Town Lansing shop in 2006 and has since welcomed any and all customers there for whatever purpose they needed, purchase, education, or even just a place to hang out for a bit. There's people that'll come in that need us. Like literally, they show up, some show up every day, some show up every week, some show up every month, but we're part of their routine. And you can see that they it means something to them. It wasn't until 2013 that Proust Pets became a matter of life and death for the Lansing community. That December, an ice storm rolled through Michigan that hit Lansing the hardest, knocking out power throughout the city for more than a week. The storm left more than six inches of ice in some spots of Michigan's capital, which was called ground zero during the storm but Proust Pets was one of the only spots in town with the lights still on. And I think really by only the grace of God that we didn't get closed down from the power outage, right? Were we able to be even in that position to help others? But we could have been, you know, not helping others but doing everything just to help ourselves at that time if it hadn't been for just a bit of luck or coincidence. I would have to say there was probably around at least 50 fish tanks of fish at the height that, that, that uh, we had prepared with. That's because power outages are potentially deadly for household fish. Without power, fish owners can't maintain temperature, oxygen levels, and filter systems. So when Lansing went dark, people brought their fish to Pruce. Aquatics manager Steve Oberg says Pruce Pets was uniquely prepared to fill every available tank with fish and refuge. 
we age water, you know, we age filters, you know, there's some of these things that would be very difficult without that. And so it was, it was fairly easy for us to, to set up that sort of uh, temporary hospital, right? But it wouldn't normally be very easy to do because we had kind of had at our hands some resources and of course the knowledge, you know, to be able to put that together for the local, local community. And Oberg said that some fish are kept at Proust Pets for more than a month to let their owners get their lives back together. Proust laughed when I asked him if it was chaotic during that time. We run this store every day with a sense of chaos because there is so much that happens and we learn well enough on how to deal with that chaos. And through that chaos, Proust Pets was able to save dozens of fish for their community. I just remember this one girl that was five years old maybe six, I don't know. And she was coming back in and we had saved their piranha, their piranha. And this little five-year-old was practically weeping in tears and jumping for joy and, and, and excited that their piranha was still alive. And that it, it, that, that, and, and it was like, wow, that's kind of, you know, you don't know how you touch people in that way and seeing different people and how they were able to kind of reunite with those animals, that's what made it all worthwhile. That was Alex Simon. This episode was produced by Sophie Grossroad, News 21 reporters Brianna Castagnon, Anton Delgado, Jordan Elder, Katie Hunger, Mackenzie Pavisic, Alex Simon, and Bridget Waltermeyer also contributed to this episode. State of Emergency is part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Knight News 21, an investigative reporting program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona. On the next episode... When it came time to make a decision if we're going to open up our property to fire refugees, at first I was against it, and it was just about one family at first, and now we've got a colony of people that are, are living in our back lot.